Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Medical Center. Joining us today is Dr. Bill Schwab, Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Schwab spoke at one of the Master Surgeon Lectures at the 2011 meeting of the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, where he described the evolution of damage control surgery. Today, I hope to discuss this evolution with him and determine how this strategy has impacted not just trauma surgery per se, but rather other disciplines that treat the injured patient as well. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Schwab. I'm glad to be here. For those not familiar with the term damage control, can you explain what this is and how it differs from bailout surgery? Well, first of all, the, the phrase damage control actually originated in the United States Navy, and it was used as a term to describe something that was done by a number of the members of the crew of a ship. So a ship was struck with ordnance, a torpedo or a bomb, and if the ship went dead in the water, then all enemy guns came to bear on that ship. Damage control was described as doing everything you can, plug up holes, bypass electrical circuits, keep motors running so that the propellers would turn and the ship would keep at least forward motion. And so the term is an old naval term. Bailout surgery is a term that I first saw back in the early 90s in an article written uh, about essentially packing everything in the abdomen and getting out of the abdomen in a hurry in order to control bleeding that way. When Mike Rotundo and I described damage control, we actually described it as three phases. One was essentially immediate surgery to control bleeding, abdominal packing, followed by an ICU phase, physiologic restoration. And then the third phase, 24 to 48 hours later, was definitive surgery to repair injury or to reconstruct uh, anatomical uh, uh, organs. And to the best of my knowledge, the first published report of this concept of damage control or abbreviated laparotomy was by Harlan Stone, where he used it not so much for hemorrhage control, but for contamination control when dealing with hollow viscera <clears throat> in the hostile abdomen. Um, you and Rotundo took this concept and expanded it to care of the injured patient. Just for a historical perspective, particularly for the younger audience, how, how did you get that leap of faith and how did you do it? Well, first of all, Dr. Stone's article is the one that's cited most often, but I will tell you that there is a paper in the 1890s in the Annals of Surgery that describes five patients with abdominal gunshot wounds. This paper originated from the Charity Hospital in, in New Orleans, and the surgeons out of desperation packed the abdomen full with uh, pads in order to stop bleeding. Also, if you're a colon and rectal surgeon, you'll know about abdominal packing or perineal or pelvic packing uh, to stop bleeding from presacral veins. And anybody that had done a lot of open uh, surgery and specifically abdominal perineal resection always had that trick uh, in their quiver because if you got into those presacral veins, there was no way you could really control those. So what you did is you packed the entire pelvis in the sacral hollow and you control things. So packing an abdomen probably goes back to antiquity. Dr. Stone described it, and interesting, even went on and described actually how to leave the abdomen open, and in a subsequent article described an abdominal zipper. Uh, 
and, and that was the early 80s, again, responding to increasing uh, injury of severity from abdominal wounding. What our concept was is to use the laparotomy or the thoracotomy, but the original article described only laparotomy, in order to control bleeding and control contamination, and then take the time to reverse coagulopathy, reverse hypothermia, bring the, if you would, the tissues, the cells back uh, to normal to restore physiology and then take the patient back and do no definitive surgery really until that third phase of damage control two or three days later. A little bit later, it built on the paper, certainly by, by Harlan Stone. We knew about that paper, but we also knew about other groups in the United States that were also packing abdomens and even some leaving the abdomens open with the packs in order to try to control bleeding, which in 1990 we didn't recognize was, we didn't recognize all the reasons for it. We knew they were coagulopathic, but we didn't know the physiology behind it. And so what are the indications for damage control laparotomy today? Uh, and does it matter if it's a blunt mechanism of injury versus penetrating? Well, first of all, the damage control technique is, is applicable to anybody that meets the physiologic criteria. First and foremost, the most common pathway that leads you to damage control is serious injuries. It can be injury, a single injury to an abdominal vessel, a thoracic vessel, even to a peripheral vessel, for example, the superficial femoral artery, can lead to it. But what happens is, is that the injury or injuries lead to exsanguination, the loss of one's blood volume in a matter of minutes. And that seems to set up a different set of, of responses that rapidly lead to coagulopathic state, hypothermia, and acidosis. When one sees that concept, severe injury, exsanguination, severe shock, hypothermia, one has to assume that the patient, if, if they could have the type of biochemical testing, would be tested and seen to be massively acidotic, have inability to clot their blood. It's that type of a, of a picture that leads to damage control more than any one, one criteria. Do you wait until you see those things manifest, or do you just, do, is there a way to predict that the train's about to fall off the tracks and I better employ damage control laparotomy? Well, again, there's numerous articles that describe the change in physiology, and again, the combination of severe injury, exsanguination, massive hypovolemic shock, and cold temperature are the three that I key off of. And, and again, I want to remind the audience and remind myself that it can be one single injury. It can be and it's usually a blood vessel, but it can be one single injury that leads to exsanguination. But that patient winds up in front of you, and they have that injury, their blood pressure is very low, they don't respond to therapy, and when you measure their temperature, their temperature is low. Now, so lest we, um, we erroneously talk about packing for hemorrhage control, what do you do in that instance? The patient is hemorrhaged dramatically, you've transfused liberally, your patient's cold, going to become coagulopathic, and you have an arterial injury. What do you, you don't pack the artery. No, one of the misconceptions early on in damage control was the concept that you could pack anything. That is not true. Uh, Mike Rotundo, in a 1997 article in the Surgical Clinics of North America, described controlling the compelling source of bleeding. And he was correct about that because you can't control arterial bleeding with packing. That has to be controlled with a clamp 
or nowadays it has to be, if you would, bypassed and controlled with a shunt. And it used to be said that you could ligate just about any artery in the abdomen and certainly in the leg. The complications were hideous sometimes. Uh, but nowadays with the advent of shunts and the excellent track record that shunts have had, especially in the peripheral arteries from the military's experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, shunning an, article, an artery and even a vein is, is probably the best thing. And that's what we would do preferentially is we would get control of any type of large vessel with clamps and then we would probably shunt and then go on with the other part of damage control which is to control contamination clean the abdomen thoroughly uh, with warm saline and then pack the abdomen you can do the same with a large soft tissue uh, wound in the leg or in the buttock or the back or where you need to and then take the patient to the icu warm them resuscitate them how long can that shunt stay in when i come back when do i need to come back to do my arterial repair well, it depends on the size of the vessel. The larger the vessel, the longer it can stay in. Remember that these people are coagulopathic anyway. They're coagulopathic from consumption and from dilutional reasons. They're coagulopathic because they're cold. And one does not need to anticoagulate these people with a shunt in. If you shunt a small vessel, it's going to clot sooner than a large vessel, just from blood flow. And most people are not using heparin-bonded shunts because they're not available 24-7 in most of the operating rooms. So what we try to say is, is that if you put a shunt in, you should be returning to the operating room in 24 to 36 hours. What really guides you, though, is remember that you don't go back to the operating room unless you must to save a life. You don't go back to the operating room until you've restored normal physiology, so the temperature is back to normal, and at least as best you can determine, the coagulopathic state is reversed. What about... Um special subtypes of patients. Let's talk about the elderly. How does that affect your decision to employ damage control? How does that affect your decision on take back to the OR? Well, first of all, there's two papers that I'm aware of in, in the literature about damage control in the elderly. And the conclusions of the paper papers are, if you have to use it, use it. And then rapidly determine in 24 to 36 hours, not only is the patient ready to go back to the operating room, but can the patient and is the patient survivable? If you do damage control in the elderly over the age of 70 for massive injury, you have to expect a very high mortality and you have to expect hideous complications. That's part of the problem with doing it in anyone, but it's worse in the elderly. And what about uh, patients with other advanced organ failures, specifically the patient that really, I think, puts a dread in the trauma surgeon's mind uh, is someone with cirrhosis. So what's the role of damage control in the cirrhotic? Are we better off doing it, or are we better off simply not doing it and going for definitive? Well, first of all, anybody that arrives with cirrhosis, um, y y you have to categorize. Having cirrhosis in normal coagulopathic state is probably a different person that has cirrhosis and has abnormal coagulation therefore doesn't have the right protein uh, uh, metabolism and isn't making the liver factors to clot their blood. That particular person has extremely high mortality no matter what you do. I think in those kind of patients you have to have a, a, a very common sense and pragmatic way to approach them. And my approach has always been to try to do everything I can to control bleeding, to immediately meet with the family with one other person from the surgical team, whether that's a nurse or another physician, and lay it out frankly for them. Most families that are living and in support of somebody with cirrhosis, especially advanced cirrhosis, know that that's 
a major problem and know that anything that causes bleeding may in fact lead to uh, a death. What I've tended to do is just treat the injuries like I would anybody else without cirrhosis and then I let natural history of the cirrhosis very quickly determine. But what I do is establish endpoints with first the team in the operating room, then the team in the ICU after I talk with the patient, and the pa I'm sorry, the patient's family. And the patient family need to know that the blood bank is not something they can exhaust and the patient has to be able to reverse their coagulopathic state. And if they don't reverse their coagulopathic state, then those patients are basically going to die. So, so far we've been talking about uh, the role of damage control mainly for the hemorrhaging patient, the trauma patient. What is the role of damage control in the general surgical patient? And by damage control, I mean what's the role of the open abdomen? Those patients are much more likely to present with sepsis rather than hemorrhagic shock. Well, it's a great question, and the only uh, paper that I know about that describing damage control in the general surgical patients is actually by Stowicki, and uh, Stan Stowicki wrote a paper when he was a fellow here in which he described it. And the difference is, is that that type of shock and that type of damage control is usually from massive prolonged contamination, and it's usually contamination of the abdomen. So you're dealing with a perforated hollow viscous. Sometimes you're dealing with this necrotizing pancreatitis, and the damage control approach there is the same. If you think about it, you're resuscitating the patient. You're taking the patient to the operating room with profound pathophysiology, usually on pressors, giving them fluid. Their problem is not necessarily hemoglobin, but in fact, they are coagulopathic, usually from the sepsis, so you have to reverse that. But the problem is source control. And the problem is finding what is causing the infection and removing that. And then what you do is you do exactly the same thing. It's careful surgery. You don't cause undue bleeding. You try not to do more damage, but you must go ahead and get rid of the source, clean as much as you can, stop the contaminating source. And whether that's in the abdomen from a hollow viscous or whether that's a huge piece of dead muscle from uh, necrotizing soft tissue infection, that's got to be removed. It's source control. And you may not be able to complete that the first night or the first day. So what you do is you get source control, stop the contamination, continue resuscitation, ICU resuscitation. You may take them back even sooner than the injured patient who's bleeding because, again, a second attempt to get source control and clean tissue and remove, especially fecal contamination, uh, sometimes is life-saving. And you hope that that period in the ICU then will get you stabilized so that you can then convert, if it's an abdominal infection to an open abdomen and treat them actually with repeated lavages and eventually some kind of diversion of fecal stream or diversion of small bowel contents if that's what is necessary. When you deal with a dead pancreas, it's a little bit more complicated, but sometimes what you have to do is you have to get rid of that dead retroperitoneum and drain it, and at the same time what you're doing is, again, source control, ICU physiologic stability, and then on to definitive surgery if you get to that far. That certainly makes a lot of sense, and that <clears throat> very much um, dovetails nicely with uh, Michael Cheatham's approach and the Orlando group in regards to abdominal compartment syndrome following just simple resuscitation uh, and the rise in abdominal pressure and the need for decompression irrespective of hollow viscera contamination. So I mean, it makes, makes, uh, makes sense. Let's go back uh, a little bit. Uh, to how it is that your group got buy-in from this concept, for this concept of damage control. I remember Dr. Rotundo, a couple years ago at one of the AASD meetings, 
uh, commented that when he first presented uh, your group's paper on damage control, he was accused of what he called blasphemy. Um, so in today's environment, how does a young trauma surgeon uh, go about successfully testing a new concept, and how do you actually go about convincing your colleagues to implement it? Well, nowadays it's a little bit easier. This is 2011, so it's 20 years after our paper in damage control, and I will tell you that within one year of our paper in damage control, there were four other papers from uh, uh, wonderful trauma groups, from the Denver group, the Vanderbilt group, uh, it, just to name two. Um, and all of them showed approximately the same thing we did, that the damage control approach with exsanguinating uh, uh, injury to the abdomen uh, uh, after penetrating injury was uh, uh, life-saving. So how do you get buy-in? Well, you get buy-in the way you introduce any new surgical procedure or any type of invasive procedure. First of all, you go to the literature and you show your colleagues the literature. Without a doubt, the literature on not just damage control, but about the problems and the um, death rate of unrecognized and treated abdominal compartment syndrome is well described in the literature. Now, have there been prospective randomized trials? The answer is absolutely not. There hasn't. But there has never been a prospective randomized trial of jumping out of an airplane at 18,000 feet without a parachute. And the reason is, is because it kind of makes sense. So what I'm saying to you with a little bit of humor here is, is that what I would do is, first of all, for somebody going to a place that has never done damage control, open abdomen, physiologic restoration, I would start off by showing them the literature and I would do a number of discussions with people about how this works and how this is used in trauma centers or in busy, high severity general surgical practice in the type of cases that we just described and make sure they're aware of that. Secondly, what I would do is I would be working with the intensive care unit, especially the nursing staff, and if you use other physicians as consultants in the ICU and make sure they're well aware of it. And let's not let out the anesthesiologist, because while we're busy trying to control the compelling source of bleeding or get control of the contaminating source, what you have to have is you have to have a very good anesthesia team in order to keep that person alive. You put those three groups of people together show them the literature, especially all of 19, I'm sorry, 2010, 2011, it's pretty convincing that controlling the compelling source of bleeding, controlling source control, leaving an abdomen open, or leaving a large wound open for soft tissue infections and packing it and bringing them back multiple times works. And so it's a lot easier nowadays than it was when uh, damage control was introduced and it was blasphemous. And so with that uh, framework of where uh, the process was and where it has come, should we consider damage control as a standard of care? And I'll, I'll define that term, not so much in the legal sense, but for a trauma center, if you're a site reviewer and you're accrediting that center, um, should the center be held up to a standard of employing it appropriately um, in instances of severe injury? Is this something that just needs to be done as part of daily practice in a good trauma center? Well, boy, lots of good adjectives in there, including good trauma center. So I would say that in a modern contemporary trauma center that sees a lot of severe injury, whether it's dominantly blunt or a high penetrating uh, percentage of uh, cases, the answer is yes, damage control is, is a standard of care. What is 
against the standard of care, what's not standard of care, is to let somebody actually uh, suffer the ravages of abdominal compartment syndrome and increased uh, abdominal hypertension. I, I would think that's recognizable amongst a group of peers. They are trauma surgeons that are active in doing this type every day, and I would think that the approach to those kind of patients nowadays pretty much is the standard of care. And I would say it's outside the United States. It's actually worldwide. When you talk to those centers that are well experienced with uh, serious injury, exsanguination, and what lead, what subsequently happens to those patients, you'll find that, that they're very comfortable actually doing damage control. The difficulty is the selection of the patients because if you do damage control uh, and you're aggressive about it, and your, your patient meets the physiologic criteria, we don't know if you're right 100% of the time. And the reason is, is because you've left the abdomen open, and so they're not gonna develop abdominal compartment syndrome. Although, again, uh, from this institution, there's a case report, and subsequently, there's one other that I, I'm aware of, of recurrent or uh, abdominal compartment syndrome that occurs even under a vac dressing. So. It's a very dynamic thing that happens in the abdomen. Whether it's purely reperfusion injury or not, I don't think anyone knows. But we do know that if you try to close an abdomen and that patient has fit the criteria that we talk about for damage control, tremendous amount of resuscitation, regardless of its blood products or crystalloid. Nowadays, more blood products than crystalloid. But they've also then had the coagulopathic state. They're massively acidotic, they're cold, those patients are going to develop abdominal compartment syndrome if their abdomens are closed. Now, if you're against all that and you want to close the abdomen and you're willing to stay there and watch them hour to hour and make sure that they're not developing that, I think you could go that route. But I think the preferred way, and I would say the standard of care is, is that they fit the criteria for damage control. Their abdomens are packed left open, a temporary abdominal dressing, whether it's a vac pack or outside of the country, it might be a Bogota bag, it might be some other apparatus, but that is, is left open. And then part of that, and I will say this is definitely a standard of care, is anybody that has an injury with a major resuscitation should have the measurement of abdominal pressure, usually by a Foley catheter with this pressure gauge in it, so that one can over time assure that increased abdominal pressure is not developing. I think another violation, if you don't place that, is that one would see increased abdominal pressure measured by Foley catheter or some other way of, of measuring it, and you didn't react to it correctly by saying, I've got abdominal compartment syndrome and opening the abdomen and leaving it open. So I've given you a lot of things here. Do I think that damage control in a good trauma center is a standard of care? Yes. Do I think the selection of patients is sometimes difficult? Yes. Do I think that all people that have a major injury or resuscitation should be monitored with Foley catheter, not only for urine output, but with bladder pressure measurements at least hourly? Yes. And do I think that if there are any clinical signs of abdominal compartment syndrome or there are measurements that determine that the patient has um, abdominal hypertension, that abdomen should be open? I would say in general, yes. They were four strong yeses. And one sees that really in a fairly short amount of time, 20 years, um, this concept has evolved and gone now beyond the general surgical realm. And one hears 
orthopedic surgeons talking about damage control orthopedics in regards to external fixators. Neurosurgeons talk about damage control neurosurgery in regards to decompressive craniectomy. So the concept seems to be um, evolving uh, far beyond what was historically the realm of the general surgeon and the abdomen, albeit that's what we've spent our time talking about today. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, discuss the historical perspective of damage control, as I think only you can. Uh, we've been speaking today with Dr. Bill Schwab regarding the evolution of damage control from Harlan Stone's original paper in 1983, and as you pointed out uh, far before that, to its current role in the care of the injured patient. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axaron. So